How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this time, we'll we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer. The purpose of this is to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship with God. Enjoying that ongoing rapport with God, enjoying that fellowship with God is critical to your Christian life and Christian growth. Scripture says that we are to walk by means of the Spirit. That is a position of intimacy with God that is also described in passages like John 15 as abiding in Christ. But when we sin, we're no longer walking by the Spirit. We're no longer abiding in Christ. We are walking according to the sin nature. Everything that we do in that position is consequently a product of the sin nature and has no spiritual value and has no uh, eternal significance. So we need to recover from sin, and that is done simply by confessing uh, known sin to God, and instantly we are forgiven of the sins we confess, and we are cleansed of all unrighteousness besides. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so very grateful that we come to you on the basis of grace, not on the basis of who we are, what we have done, but on the basis of who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross, that because he was able to provide a perfect salvation for us, we are able to come into your presence. We are able to have a relationship with you by simply trusting in him. It is that he is the object of our faith. He is the one that performed the work. He is the one that has the merit. And ultimately, it is on the basis of his righteousness that is imputed to us that we have uh, that we are justified and that we have everlasting life. Father, we pray that as we continue our study today, as we continue to look at First Thessalonians and come to understand the implications and applications of what the Apostle Paul wrote, that we might see this, uh, the significance of it in our own lives, that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to us how we need to change the way we think with the result that we change the way we live, that we might glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're at verse 8, which we began last time. And last time, if you remember, we focused primarily on faith, on what is faith, because this is a word that is at the heart of a lot of debate and a lot of theological discussion and also a lot of confusion about the nature of the gospel itself. And I pointed out that faith basically means to believe that something is true to affirm that something is true. Now, it's the something that's important. That's what we would call the content of the gospel. Uh, do we believe that it is true that we are saved by faith in Christ plus baptism? Well, no, that would be the wrong content. That would be Christ plus something. Are we saved because we believe in Christ plus we live a good life? No, that's not right because that's not the right content. 
Uh, do we believe that we're saved because the Bible says that Christ died for our sins? Well, that's not quite right either. Now, we're just believing that's what the Bible says, but that doesn't mean we, ha- we believe what the Bible says. And that would be that we believe that Christ died for our sins. To personalize that, I believe Christ died for my sins, paid the penalty for my sins on the cross. I can do nothing at all to pay the penalty for my sins. Christ did it all, and I'm relying totally and exclusively upon him for my salvation. That's what faith is. The Bible says it. It's true. Therefore, I believe it. Now, this time, I want to expand a little bit on what I said last time. Go back and review a couple of things to just help us understand some of the confusion about this topic a little bit and then move on into uh, a second aspect of faith, which is not just faith at gospel hearing or believing the gospel to be true, but what happens after salvation in terms of what we call the faith rest drill. It is our ongoing life of faith after salvation. In First Thessalonians 1.8, Paul praises the Thessalonian believers. And were that it were true that all of us could be praised this way, that the word of the Lord, and in context, that's referring to the message, the content that Paul had given to them already, that which they had learned in Bible class, the message of God that has been uh, proclaimed to them back in verse 8. He says, So affectionately longing for you, we are well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own uh, our own lives. And he talks about this as the content that he had given to them. Verse 9, he says, You remember, brethren, uh, excuse me, I'm, Sorry, I misplaced. I skipped over into verse uh, chapter 2. In verse 8, he he talked about, uh, or verse 7, rather, he talked about, um, verse 6, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. Logos is the Greek word there, and that can refer to message. So he's saying that you received our message uh, from the Lord. At this point, as I pointed out last time, at this point, only a couple of other New Testament books had been written. Paul had written Galatians, only one epistle at this point. James was written, and possibly Matthew was written at, before or at about the same time. We can't be exactly precisely certain about the date of Matthew, but it's roughly this same time. So there's no collection of New Testament books. There's no... Um, canon of scripture at this point it's just beginning so to read into that statement that this is the bible isn't quite what he is saying but today i think that would be an implication of of that that the new testament would certainly be included in terms of application so he praised them and he says your 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 uh, reputation has gone forth not only in macedonia which is the northern part of uh what we call modern greece today and Achaia, this is make up the southern part of what we would describe as modern Greece today. These were the two regions. So the, their reputation had been announced all throughout these regions and beyond, he says, but also in every place. And they said, your faith toward God has gone out. Now, that's what we've sort of camped out on that phrase to understand what this means. First and foremost, it means faith toward the gospel, 
faith toward the gospel. He expands on this, as I was just reading over in verses 9 Nine and uh, or eight and nine in chapter two, he talks about the gospel of God, the good news from God, which relates to Jesus Christ, and that he had proclaimed to them the gospel of God. That's the content of their belief for salvation. The word for belief is this Greek word pistis. This is a noun. I'm going to get into a little grammar here because there's a background problem and why we have have. <clears throat> Some of the misunderstandings that we have in, in uh, Christian theology today goes back to how these words are translated, and this is a noun uh, as opposed to the verb, which is uh, pistevo. The root is p-i-s-t. Uh, the root, the the verb is pistevo, which means to believe, and therefore the noun is belief, as I've pointed out there. It's also translated trust or value or proof. Uh, we could say that in some uh, some places it's translated it's it translated faith, but there's a problem with translating it faith. If we're going to translate pistevo as to believe, then we should translate uh, pistis as belief, uh, so that we keep a continuity there. When we translate pistis, which is traditional, we translate it faith. We get into a little confusion. I'll develop that in just a minute. So we're looking at this concept of faith. So there's saving faith, that at the point of gospel hearing, and secondly, there's the life of faith that comes after that. And that's what I want to talk about uh, today. It's been a while since I've done an in-depth on the faith rest drill. This isn't going to be as in-depth as I've done in the past, but I want to give at least a brief uh, summary or synopsis of what we mean by the faith rest drill. First point, the Christian walk is clearly based on the faith rest drill. This is everything that comes after salvation. This is seen in passages such as Colossians chapter 2 verse 6. Colossians 2 6, Paul writes, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord. So this is using the word received as a synonym for faith. And this is understood also in passages like John 1.12, For as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God. John 1.12 is preceded by John 1.11, which talks about the word coming to his people, but his people, his own, did not uh, accept him, did not receive him, but as many as did receive him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God. So receiving Jesus as Savior is parallel to believing or trusting uh, trusting in Christ. So Paul says, as you receive Christ, it's salvation, which was by faith alone in Christ alone, so we are to walk in him. The dynamic for salvation is faith. Our walk in the Christian life is by faith. Now, last time we talked about saving faith, as simply belief that the gospel is true, which would be called assent by some people. They say, oh, no, no, it's not enough just to have intellectual assent. Well, assent is a function of the mind, so there's no other kind of assent. And when you assent to something, that is essentially the idea of what we mean by belief. Uh, Let me demonstrate that. Here's a good quote I ran ran across uh, since last week from James Hall Brooks. James Hall Brooks was a pastor of a Presbyterian church in St. Louis, Missouri in the 
uh, latter part of the 19th century. He was one of the great founders of dispensational theology in the United States. And his other claim to fame is that he influenced uh, uh, C.I. Schofield, the author of the Schofield Reference Bible. He was a noted Bible uh, teacher and pastor, and he was also mentor to Lewis Berry Chafer, who founded D- Dallas Theological Seminary. And uh, James Hall Brooks was his, uh, I'm not sure that he was his pastor, but he influenced Sch- Schofield because Schofield was a young a young man not long after his conversion to Christ, uh, he was in the, the St. Louis area as, as a lawyer. So here's another example of a, a noted uh, and influential theologian and pastor who says that saving faith is the simple acknowledgement that what God has said is true. We believe that it is true. That's what it means. It means to acknowledge something is true. That is what is meant by intellectual assent, as I will show in just a minute. Now, last time, I pointed out that one of the issues in this discussion is that in the reform, in reform theology, and among those who hold to lordship theology, they have broken, uh, our understanding of faith down into three categories. Notitia, Ascensus and fiducia. These are three Latin words. Noticia means understanding. Ascensus means to assent, to agree that something is true, to acknowledge that something is true. And then fiducia, which is belief. But we get into a problem here because of semantics and translation. This is one of those uh, uh, very um, shifty kinds of arguments where there are certain subtleties there where the terms are, are unknowingly uh, switched on somebody, and so it's sort of like a a con man's shell game, but it's with words. Uh, The word, the English word faith, the English word faith is related more to the Latin word uh, fides, as we'll see in just a minute, uh, fides. And uh, so when it is translated, Faith is trans, uh, fides is translated as faith, or faith is related to fides. It, you lose the significance that the Greek, that the New Testament's originally written in Greek, and uh, the original uh, Greek verb is pistuo, or p- pistis for the noun. And so we have this 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 the shift occurs because in defining faith here as fiducia, you're using a word to define itself. You never use a word to define itself. When you're defining a word, a concept, you don't use the same word in the definition. That's the word you're trying to define. But see, in in the way that language developed, this uh, scholars uh, still, at the time the English Bible was translated, uh, still used Latin in uh, the classroom, in academia, in the universities, in seminaries, and much that was written theologically still depended heavily upon uh, the Latin language. Our English Bible and our uh, English theological uh, tradition is heavily influenced by the history of the English language. And the English language doesn't really come into its own until the early 1600s because of the influence of two things, William Shakespeare and the King James Bible. But if you go back and you look at some of the earlier 
uh, English translations in just the 1500s, you see a huge tra- a transition that's taking place in English. English was still a, 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 a evolving language by the late 1400s, but it really takes on its own and becomes stabilized through the influence primarily of the Bible and secondarily by great literature like, uh, like William, William Shakespeare. So the translators who are translating into English are talk, using words that are primarily influenced by Anglo-Saxon. That's their heritage. That's the background for English. But when it came to certain technical words in the, that they would use in the translation, because of their knowledge of Latin and because much theology had been written in language, they would go to Latin-based words, especially in these theologically driven texts. So English words such as justification, salvation, faith, cross, glory, and propitiation are all English words that are derived either directly from the Latin or indirectly through French, and that's how they came into the English language in contrast to words that were used um, in, in Greek. Since the Bible was written in uh, Koine Greek, Koine Greek, which is a little bit different from Latin, you have two different English words that are used to translate uh, the Greek concept. You have belief and faith. Faith derives from the Latin. Belief has a different set of origin. So in translating the Greek verb, this is what happened. They would translate the Greek verb, uh, pistuo, by the Anglo-Saxon word believe. And then they would translate the related noun, fides, the related noun fides by the uh, unrelated word faith. Now, the way that, that this has transpired in terms of the argument is that, that one side says that it's not enough to simply believe. Believe means to assent or to agree to the facts, intellectual assent. This is given a bad connotation by a lot of pastors and a lot of preachers. We need to have more than simply intellectual assent. We have to have faith. Faith is something that is built out of proportion, but they're playing a shell game uh, based on linguistics and semantics when the reality is that you can, you can clarify all of this just by consistently translating the pistevo, uh, pistis word group the same way. Always translate pistevo as believe, uh, to believe, and pistis as belief. That gets the point across and clarifies uh, the confusion that's brought on by a fa- uh, false understanding of of, uh, of the English language. Now, another verse that talks about the Christian life as a walk by faith is 2 Corinthians 5.7. We walk by faith and not by sight. Now, the phrase by faith translates the Greek phrase dia, the preposition dia plus a genitive, which is a way of expressing instrumentality or means Rather than causation, we're not, we don't walk because of faith. We walk through faith. Same language is used in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is the means by which something is delivered. For example, the wiring in your house is how electricity is delivered from the power plant 
to the appliances in your house. It's simply a conduit, and that's what faith is. It's a conduit. It's not the faith itself that has the power. It is simply the, it's the object of faith that has the power, which is Christ. Now, here we see that there's a contrast, an apparent contrast, that's set up between faith and sight. Sight is a uh, part of our senses. Uh, we have five senses, what we see, what we hear, what we taste, what we touch, uh, what we smell. This is the foundation for what is called empiricism. Now, I referred to this uh, last time, put this chart up again to remind you that there are four basic ways in which we know things. Now, sometimes there's combinations of these, but these are the four independent basic ways in which we come to know anything is true. Uh, identify them as a system, as having the starting point as the method by which that is used. This comes out of philosophy and the study of what is known as, as, uh, as epistemology, how we know what we know. The first system is rationalism. Rationalism is a system of pure thought, starting with a, a perceived first principles that are understood in the mind uh, intuitively or directly that are uh, seen to be true in and of themselves, and so they're referred to as innate ideas. And But ultimately, it's a belief that my mind can perceive truth apart from any sense data or any outside input just in and of itself. So it ultimately is built on faith. And then the method by which we start is, is an independent use of logic and reason. The most uh, famous uh, rationalist in modern history was a, was a Jesuit mathematician by the name of René Descartes. And he used the principle of, of doubt that, that, well, I, I'm not really sure that my eyes can tell me the truth or that my hearing can tell me the truth. So how do I know that what I see is real? How do I know that you are real? How do I know that this isn't just some sort of hallucination that God is giving me and that there's nothing real at all? How do I know that I'm even real? And this, as he kept asking this question, he said, well, finally he said, I must be real because I'm thinking. And that was his famous statement, I think, therefore I am. In Latin it was cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. So he, that's his starting point is I exist, so some, something exists. I exist, I know that, so can I move from that to the existence of other things and can I move from the existence of other things uh, to the existence of God? So it's all the use of rigorous logic, but only through the, the this rationalism through that which is perceived intellectually in the mind. Well, he couldn't really get to God. There were problems in the system. So another system came along called empiricism. Now, these all have their ancient counter counterparts as well. Rationalism was expressed by Plato in the ancient world. Empiricism was expressed by the philosophy of Aristotle in the in the ancient world. And it's the idea that that we're born with an with a um, empty slate a mind that is blank, and everything that's there is a result of what comes in through our our senses. The information we receive from sight, from hearing, from smell, taste, touch, that's our starting point. But again, it's a faith that my mind can properly interpret what I have seen and that I know that because I've seen it, tasted it, touched it, felt it, repeated it in the laboratory, that it, therefore it must be true. Again, it's a faith in human ability. So 
Empiricism is what is expressed by the statement, we walk by sight. We walk on the basis of, of our sense data. We walk on the basis, uh, we live our life on the basis of empiricism. Some people said, well, I don't believe that God exists because unless I can feel it, taste it, touch it, I don't believe it. Well, we believe a lot of things that we can't quantify and capture in, by our, by our sense data. Uh, on the base, anything that's on the, that we learn or know on the basis of evidence that someone else gives us, um, we know to be true on the basis of their sense data, not ours. We don't directly perceive that. So there's always a sense that there's faith. So faith in, in this passage isn't juxtaposed to sight. It's really sort of a, a shorthand that Paul uses here. He, he's, he's really saying, that we walk by faith in God's revelation. See, our third human viewpoint system for knowledge is mysticism, and the basis for truth is revelation. God reveals something to, to us, and we believe it. Everybody talks about faith in something. Everybody walks by faith in something, rather. Everybody walks by faith in science, by faith in atheism, by faith in some religion, whether it's faith in Buddhism, faith in Judaism, faith in Islam, faith in transcendental meditation, faith in hypnosis, whatever it is, everybody has faith in something. Faith is what undergirds everything. So Paul isn't contrasting faith with sight. He's contrasting faith in God's word and sight. He just doesn't say the whole line there. He's not, because everybody walks by faith, but he's talking about we, how we as Christians walk, and we walk by faith in the Word of God and not by sight. He's not just talking about generic faith or generic spirituality, but that which is true and that which is, uh, which is biblical. So the first point, that I'm emphasizing here is that the Christian life is a walk of faith or a life of faith where that we describe as the faith rest drill. Now, that hyphenated term faith rest emphasizes two things. Faith is that we are trusting God. And that faith is, is a verb. Our belief, believing is a verb. And when we believe something, that consequently means a change in thought or change in action. If we are agreeing that something is true, we want to live according to that which is true, and so that affects how we live and what we do. And so that is a faith, that's an active concept, because if God says pray without ceasing, we believe that, then the consequence is that we are praying. If um, if the Scripture says that we are not to commit murder, then we don't commit murder. That's a matter of faith. Uh, today we would try to separate that because people people argue that religion doesn't impact day to day life, but the Bible is is very different. Faith does change things. So faith it, the faith rest drill is believing God and resting in Him. The the best verse to capture this is is First uh, Peter five seven casting all your care upon Him because He cares for you. We are always depending upon him, that walk of dependence, because he cares for us. Now, the second point that we understand in terms of the faith rest drill is that the faith rest drill, that our walk, our Christian walk, is always by means of something. This is emphasized in the Scripture. We walk by means of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.16. We walk by means of faith 
in Second Corinthians 5, 7, and we walk by means of the truth in Third John, verse 4, where Paul says, I have, I mean, John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk by means of truth. So these work together. We're walking in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. We're walking in dependence on truth, which is the objective path that the Holy Spirit's laid out for us in the Scripture, and we walk by faith in the Scripture and walk by faith in God's ability to lead us and direct us and to guide us. Now, there's basically three steps in terms of the practice of the faith rest drill. Three steps, and we'll walk through these a little in a little more detail, but this just summarizes these, these three steps. Um, first of all, we claim a promise. Claiming a promise means that we look at a promise that God has made in the Scripture, and we, in effect, are holding God to that. There is a, a promissory element to 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, John says, God is faithful to cleanse us and to forgive us and to cleanse us from those sins. That's an absolute statement. If we do something, God will do something else. That's a promise from God. God is saying, if you confess your sin, then I will do something. So when we confess our sin, we are in effect saying, God, I'm holding you to this. I have committed this sin. You say, if I name it, if I admit it, if I acknowledge it before you, if I identify that this is something I have done, that you will instantly forgive me and cleanse me of that sin, and I'm restored to fellowship. That is exactly what it means to claim, claim a promise. We're in effect saying, God, you said it. I'm holding you to this. I'm trusting in you to fulfill your word in this particular instance. It's true, for example, in uh, promises related to fear, worry, anxiety, God's in control. We claim the promise and trust in God to take care of the circumstances and situation so that we can relax. We cast our care, our worries, our anxiety upon him because he cares for us. Second step is we think it through. We think through the doctrinal rationale that's embedded in the promise. We'll talk about this a little more, but Take that same promise from 2 Corinthians 5, 7, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. So how does that begin? It begins by saying that we are to be doing something. It's a something we do continuously. We cast or we throw or we place upon God uh, our cares, our cares, our worries, our concerns, the things that distract us in life, our, our anxieties. We put that upon God. Why? Because he cares for us. Now, as we think about that, the reason we can do that is because of God's care and love for us. Because God loves us, he's concerned about the details of our life. So we we think through, as we meditate upon that promise, we think through the underlying rationale that God loves us. This is expressed other ways in Scripture. If God is for us, who can be against us? So again, it's emphasized that many different ways in which that principle is expressed in different promises. But I want you to notice that when Jesus, I mean, understanding these rationales are important, but when Jesus is facing the temptation from Satan in the wilderness, Jesus doesn't use doctrinal rationales. He starts with Scripture, claiming a promise. He starts with a focus on what the Word of God actually says. He just doesn't extrapolate the rationale or the principle. Now, it's important for us to understand that principle. I'm not saying that there's not an application there, but we can't divorce that from the promises that are there. 
We need to keep those connected. Otherwise, you slip off into what is more of a Christian philosophy than a biblical way of facing life. And as Christians, we want to understand that our life is based on biblical principles and not just on theological rationales. They have to be connected, and you don't want to separate your theological rationale from the anchor in the text of God's Word. The third step is that we appropriate or apply those doctrinal conclusions. In other words, if the conclusion is that God cares for me so that he's not going to take me, he knows all things, and he knows every situation in my life, therefore whatever just happened is something that is was known by God from eternity past. He allowed this to come into my life for whatever the reasons are, and therefore I need to relax and trust in him. Now, this may take time. There are circumstances I've gone through, circumstances you've gone through, where this just isn't an instantaneous process. It may be for a few moments, and five minutes later, after you've cast your care upon the Lord, you're grabbing it and you're pulling it back, and you get into this tug-of-war that's going on, and it may go on for months as you're working through the process. You go through some really intense situations in life. You go through circumstances that may involve uh, unemployment, They may involve major health crises. They could also entail other tangential adversities, including uh, financial problems. Uh, You can have marriage problems. You can have problems related to uh, your children. You can have problems that are related to uh, just about anything in life. And if they're extremely traumatic, then the result of this can take time for you to to settle down, and what allows you to settle down, it may take weeks even for you to settle down. You're staying awake at night. You may say, okay, everything's fine. You pray. You go to sleep. Three hours later, you wake up, and all of a sudden, you're just seized by anxiety. That's when you have to stop and walk through that process again, focusing on Scripture, memorizing Scripture, uh, utilizing that again, and it's the Scripture and the Holy Spirit that help focus us, calm us down, and stabilize us in the midst of that, uh, in the midst of that trauma. So this is the process. So I want to start off by just talking a little bit about what it means to claim a promise. Uh, claim a promise. So first of all, this means that, that we have to have scripture or part of scripture uh, stored in our soul. It may be just a little bit of a verse, a phrase, a clause, uh, but we have scripture that's in, in our, our uh, soul. So we claim that. We say, God says somewhere, fear not for I am with thee. Okay. God is with me. I'm not going to be afraid. Uh, we have a statement, be anxious for nothing. Okay. I'm, I'm just not supposed to be anxious. I'm supposed to trust in God. And so we start, uh, focusing on that. That's called in, in scripture meditation. This isn't the, like the Eastern religious methodology of meditation where you empty your mind. Uh, in Christian meditation is where you fill your mind with the Word of God, with a promise. So you focus upon that. And this isn't something that we learn that comes automatically to us. It, it, takes, uh, it takes time uh, for that to take place. One of the things that helps is for us to have scriptures that are memorized. We have a little book around here that I put out on promises. 
memorize the promises that are in that that booklet, something that you can use. Because when we need to claim promises or when we're in the midst of a crisis, and we may not always have a Bible handy, we may not always have a book of promises handy, we have to have this stored in our soul. If we go through crises in life uh, that, that occur... Uh, that take us away from the Word of God. You think of soldiers who have been put in prisoner of war camps. You think of uh, of people who have been affected by war where they have become uh, displaced, where their homes are destroyed. Uh, one of the areas I love to read about is World War II. But recently I have just been so impressed with what happened in France and in Germany to to hundreds of thousands of people who had their entire villages, everything they knew, everything they owned, obliterated in the bombings that occurred and obliterated in the war. And when the war ended, they had nothing. Their, you know, your pre- precious little study Bible that you've written notes in for 40 years is gone. In other words, you're left with nothing but what's in your soul. And so it's important for us before the crisis hits to get this into our soul and learn doctrine. Proverbs chapter Three indicates that sometimes it's too late to get wisdom when the crisis hits. We're not prepared for it. A situation that um, uh, we were talking about, uh, I was talking about with a friend recently, uh, that, that we're talking about certain problems that people have today when they go through this, this, this certain traumas in life that they don't seem to handle it like our parents did. And one of the things that we noted was that our parents grew up in a time of, of great adversity in the Great uh, Great Depression, and so this prepared them for things that would they would uh, they would encounter in life. But we have a generation that's self-absorbed. We have a generation that is pampered. We have a ge- generation that has uh, so many luxuries that by the time they get to adulthood and face some real life problems. Uh, they've never really encountered difficulties before, and it really throws them. They don't have the internal resources of character built into them during their childhood and formative years to be able to handle the adversities that come with adulthood. And so we find them spending uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours uh, going to counseling, or they try to solve their problem through drugs, through alcohol, through all sorts of pleasures, rather than just being able to face life and uh, in, and overcome the adversity that comes. As Christians, of course, we know the only way to permanently handle these things is through the Word of God. So we need to memorize Scripture. We need to learn this so when the tr- crisis occurs, we have that Scripture ready to hand. So uh, this is very important to memorize Scripture. Create a list for yourself of the basic promises and scriptures that you want to memorize and then work your way through once one verse a week or two verses a week. Sometimes it's helpful to memorize uh, passages because then you get a whole flow of thought and to commit these to memory. Work with them with your children. That's a great way for you as a parent to internalize these promises is as you're helping your children learn them. And the benefit that you're giving them uh, is just tremendous. I, as a pastor, from the first time I got in the pulpit, all of a sudden I realized a tremendous value I had because as a child, I, both in Sunday school and at uh, Camp Penile, I learned a lot of verses. My mother says that the first verse that I ever, the first sentence I ever uttered 
uh, complete sentence I ever uttered was 1 John 1, 9. I guess she knew that I would need to use that quite a bit. But that was um, uh, one of the first things I ever learned was 1 John 1, 9, then John 3, 16. And when I first started as a pastor, all of a sudden I'd be teaching and a verse would come to mind. All these verses I'd memorized over the years were just popping into my head. That was by God the Holy Spirit. So we need to memorize Scripture so that God the Holy Spirit have, has the tools to work with when we encounter uh, encounter problems. I just want to run through uh, a few of these. One of the things that we can do when we are facing problems is to focus on the character of God. This is a this is a, a a standard procedure that David uses in the Psalms. He starts off in what are called lament psalms. That means you're basic basically crying to God about some circumstance in your life. And you see a number of these lament psalms in in the Old Testament. As David is facing some horrible situation, hostility, anger, enemies, gossip, slander, whatever the circumstance, and he's coming to God basically uh, crying about, I've got this horrible situation. Where are you? How am I going to survive? And as he thinks through this, he begins to focus upon the character of God always. It's in the center of these psalms. There's a focus on the character of God. And then as he comes to the conclusion of the psalm, he's praising God because God is the one who will rescue and deliver him and get him through these circumstances because of God's uh, character and ultimately because of God's faithfulness. Psalm 119, 89, and 90 tells us, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. It's permanent. It is forever. And, and, and when we live in a world of changing circumstances and chaos, we, if we just stop back and say God's word is forever, it was settled in heaven. Thy word is settled in heaven. That helps to stabilize us. Psalm 119.90, thy faithfulness continues throughout all generations. Thou didst establish the earth and it stands. So if God is able to, as we think it through in terms of the rationale that's there, we realize if God is able to create the universe and stabilize the universe according to the laws that he put into the universe, then my problems and my difficulties sort of pale in significance in terms of what God can do. If he can do the big things, he can do handle the little things in my life. Uh, God is different than I am. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said it? Will he not do it? So God has made the promise we can count on it. He won't go back on his word. He has said it, and he will do it. Uh, Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? A great promise that God will carry out his word. Sometimes we face enemies. And there are businesses that are just cutthroat. There's tremendous competition for jobs, to keep a job. There are people out there who have no background in Christianity. They have no sense of virtue, no sense of integrity. They are going to lie about you. They are going to spread rumors about you. They're going to be jealous of you, and you are not going to know a lot of what is going on. There are people out to destroy you just for the sake of destroying you. And God forbid that you run into people like this, but they are all around us, and their numbers multiply simply because we live in a world that is more and more divorced from any sort of Christian integrity or Christian influence. And so we need to 
uh, recognize that there's so many things we face in life where all the circumstances are beyond our control. And so we have promises like Hebrews 13:6. We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? So we put our focus on God and not on people. People can threaten us. People can be a danger to us. But we're going to focus on the Lord and trust in him to be our, our scripture uses a variety of terms, shield, our buckler, our fortress. He's going to take care of us. Another problem we have is that sometimes we feel down. We have the blues. Some days we just don't feel so great. But sometimes we get depressed. Depression is the result of a number of different things, sometimes disappointment in life. Things haven't turned out the way that we thought they should. Sometimes we experience tremendous loss, and as a consequence of that, we we feel depressed. Uh, Depression in and of itself is not a sin. It is what we do with that that becomes a sin if we let it uh, move us in a direction of disobedience. Whenever we feel down, we feel discouraged, we should let that drive us to God and to his word. Passages like Isaiah uh, 40, 29. Uh, Isaiah, let me see here. Isaiah 30, uh, Psalm 37, 28. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. God is not going to forsake us. God is not going to leave us alone. God is not going to um, abandon us. He is going to be there. We may think that he's forgotten about us. We may think that he's concerned about something else, but he does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. God is faithful to us. Another passage, I don't have it on the screen, but as Isaiah forty twenty nine, he gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might. He increases power. God is the one who gives us strength. Uh, Psalm 18.2 specifically addresses this. He's the source of our strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. Think about the words that are used there to describe God's power and strength and his protection for us. He's a rock. He's a fortress. He's a deliverer. He's the one in whom we take refuge. He's a shield. He's the horn of my salvation. Uh, he is my stronghold. God is the one who takes care of us and provides for us. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-four. He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, uh, neither has he hidden his face from him. So he is the source of comfort for us. A good passage for this is also Second Corinthians 1 is an extended discussion of comfort from God. Uh, The psalmist goes on to say, Neither has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him for help, he heard. God hears our prayers. God is a source of safety and security. That doesn't mean you don't use alarm systems or lock your door or those other things, but but ultimately it's it's God who provides security and stability for us. Proverbs 133, but he who listens to me shall live securely. Uh, wisdom, a personification of God, is speaking in this passage. He who listens to me shall live securely and shall be at ease from the dread of, of evil. Another passage stressing God's help is in Psalm 42.11. Uh, why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. 
the help of my countenance and my God. God is the one that sustains us, and God is the one who protects and provides for us. Um, sometimes we have problems with guilt. Isaiah 43:25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgression. So we may have committed horrible sins. We may have been involved in things we profoundly regret and have remorse over. But God wipes out the transgressions for his own sake, and he will not remember, not remember our sins. Another verse similar to this is Psalm 103.12. As far as the east is from the rest, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Okay, I'm going to stop at this point, and next week we'll come back and continue on the faith rest drill. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study these things today in this class. And, Father, we pray that you'd help us to focus on your promises, be reminded of your faithfulness and your love and care for us, and that no matter what we're facing, you will sustain us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.